This is Inputs, the podcast by Top Crop Manager, Canada's national source for the latest agronomic research, crop production, and technology trends. You've tuned in to hear conversations about relevant research, best production practices, and everything in between. Hi, everyone. I'm Stephanie Gordon with Top Crop Manager. If you've been listening regularly, you know that we've been chatting with speakers from our Plant Health Summit which took place in late February 2020 in Saskatoon. This episode is all about diseases. For the first half, we'll cover aphanomyces and pulse diseases, and for the second half, we'll cover clubroot and canola. My interviews with the speakers don't rehash many details, but take a broader outlook on the disease and what we can be doing better. Any resources mentioned will be included in the show notes for anyone interested in learning more. So let's get to it. And I've talked about this a lot over the past five years, so I decided to take this presentation in a little bit of a different direction today. Rather than talk about the basics of root rot and what's the difference between some of the pathogens, I really wanted to focus more on the research that we're doing and what we are doing to try and tackle this problem. Uh, I'm Shama Chatterton. I'm a pulse pathologist researcher at uh, the Lethbridge Research Centre with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada. And so today you were talking about root rot and aphanomyces. How big of an issue is this and can you give some background into it? Yeah, so aphanomyces uh, came onto the scene in about 2012-2013 in Alberta and Saskatchewan uh, where we really saw that a lot of pea and lentil fields were suddenly yellowing uh, in the middle of the growing season and around flowering. Um, at the time, we didn't know what the problem was, assumed that it was fusarium root rot, but with a little bit of digging and DNA testing, we found that we had a new pathogen in the prairies, Phanomyces eutyches, which can really be a devastating pathogen of pea and lentils. So we followed up with doing surveys across Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba, um, and on average found that between uh, 40 to 50 percent of fields uh, were infected with Phanomyces, and that number um, can go up a lot higher in very wet years. And so it's still fairly new. What are some misconceptions people might have, growers or researchers, about the disease? Well, I think the first uh, misconception is misdiagnosing it as a fusarium root rot. Um, it can be very challenging to distinguish uh, aphanomyces from fusarium. Uh, so that's one of the first most important things to do. And symptoms alone can't often distinguish them, so we do recommend uh, if you suspect you have a phanomyces to follow up with either a soil test or getting your roots tested by by a commercial lab that, that provides those tests. And I think the other thing to watch out for is just the host range of phanomyces, that both peas and lentils are equally susceptible. Alfalfa, we're still trying to figure out uh, that story there, but it, it could also pose a risk. Whereas the other pulse crops like fava bean, chickpea and soybean are either not hosts or are very resistant. So let's talk about management. You mentioned soil tests, live root tests. What have you seen in terms of the efficacy of soil testing to be able to diagnose? and live roots. Yeah, so uh, soil testing can be tricky because Aphanomyces produces these very thick-walled resting spores called ooze spores. And because of those thick walls, they can be a very difficult to crack open and we need to crack open the cells in order to pull that DNA out and then test, um, that the, the test is based on DNA. So what we've seen is that particularly in dry years, we can have very high false negative rates from soil tests. 
Uh, so it is something for producers to watch out for, that if they are bringing a soil into the commercial lab and it comes back negative, but they have seen a lot of yellowing on their pea and lentil fields, that maybe they need to do a little more digging or ask a little more questions uh, to make sure it's a phanomyces. Uh, and so what I do recommend is that producers get their roots tested uh, while they have a pea or lentil crop in the ground and they notice that yellowing, uh, particularly if uh, you notice yellowing kind of in low spots, spots where water collects early in the season. Uh, it, it can start as small patches, and so that's a good time to get those roots tested to confirm that you have a phanomyces so that you know for the next time you grow pea and lentils uh, that you might have a problem or that you should start extending your rotations before that problem really spreads out of those small patches. And what time in the season would you say is a good time to test? Yeah, the best time to test that we've seen for Phanomyces is mid-June, about six weeks after planting. So it would depend a little bit on when, when you seed. But between that six to eight week period is when we see a Phanomyces is highest in the roots, particularly uh, if it's been a wetter spring. Um, then we'd see it. The problem is if you wait um, until kind of flowering or after flowering is when we often see fusarium come in on top of the aphanomyces and that can sometimes mask the presence of aphanomyces on that, on that test. Mm -hmm. And what is the relation of the disease to moisture? What are you seeing when it's a dry year? What are you seeing when it's a wet year? Uh, so for pea and lentil it seems to be a different story with the wet and dry years. In peas, we are seeing very high levels of root rot in wet years. Um, that does come down a little bit in dry years, but it's still there. So, so in a wet year, we might be between 80 to 90 percent of fields are positive for peas, and then in a dry year, it's maybe down to 40 to 50 percent. For lentils, what we've seen is very high levels in wet years, uh, you know, 60 to 70 percent, but then in the dry years, it comes down a lot more than peas. Uh, you know, in, in Alberta in 2017, when it was very dry, we didn't even find any aphanomyces in lentils, whereas in Saskatchewan in 2017, we saw those levels come down to about 30 to 40 percent. So lentils seem to fare a little bit better in dry years, probably because they're just a little bit adapt better adapted to those drier conditions as well. And you talked a bit about how sometimes aphanomyces can get confused with other rots, fusarium. Can you talk a bit more about what you were saying in your presentation about the B and C list pathogens? Yes, absolutely. So root rots are caused by a complex, um, and we're focusing on aphanomyces because that is the one um, that can be the most destructive. It's the one that probably comes in first and helps facilitate other pathogens. But there are a number of pathogens that are related to root rot and that can sometimes cause problems on their own. Uh, and those include uh, Pythium, Rhizoctonia, and a lot of different Fusarium species. And for the most part, Pythium and Rhizoctonia can be managed. They're more seedling blights and they can be managed with seed treatments. Um, that, that target those specific pathogens. Uh, whereas Fusarium, it really seems to like to hitch a ride with Aphanomyces and is certainly contributing to the high disease severity levels that we're seeing. And then the, to make things more complicated, Fusarium root rot is a problem all on its own in the absence of Aphanomyces. And we kind of see with fields that have root rot, you know, 50% generally tend to have both Aphanomyces and Fusarium, and the other 50% maybe just Fusarium root rot on their own. So we are looking at, we lump all the root rots together, but there is actually a number of different kinds of root rots. Mm -hmm. And so when you were doing your field trials, what were some of the challenges that your team had when it came to your Aphanomyces research? 
well, the biggest challenge is that this pathogen is extremely frustrating to work with. Even though we see it cause so much disease out in the field, uh, we wanted to set up inoculated field trials where we could compare healthy, no diseased plants to our diseased plants. Um, particularly to look at some of the yield impacts. But despite trying for the past three to four years, uh, we have not been able to get a Phanomyces to establish um, at our chosen field trial site. So what we've had to do is go out into producers' fields to perform our, all our field trials. And that has the benefit of being able to look at the time out of peas from the last time the producers planted peas. And so every year we're a little bit farther away. So it helps us answer that question, um, but then we don't have a healthy check, and then we are we, we have to kind of deal with the producers and sometimes the challenges of trying to fit in our small field trials into their very large field operations. Mm-hmm. So you've done a lot of research on this. What are some management takeaways for farmers, for agronomists about dealing with the disease? Yeah, so I think the number one takeaway is rotation. And I think that's what a pathologist always falls back on. That's our number one rule is uh, really pay attention to rotation. So first, before you even know you have an aphanomyces problem, it is important to practice good rotations uh, because the more times you have pea and lentil in your crop history, the more likely you are to be hit pretty hard with the disease. So you want to start out with good rotation practices to begin with, you know, like four to four to five years between a pea and lentil crop. Once you know that you have an infested field, then you really have to extend those rotations. And we are recommending six to eight years, but we are also doing more research on that to make sure that that recommendation holds true. And uh, we've had one field trial site where it has been seven years since they last grew peas, and we did see a, a pretty good reduction in disease severity and a, and a very nice increase in yield after seven years at a peas. So, you know, we think that number is on target, but it might also um, just depend on the, the area where you're growing peas, what the weather was like, if it's a wet year or dry year, that can really make a difference as well. And you talked a, a little bit about spore loads and about how the disease was able to go on undetected for so long because it never reached a threshold at, at which the disease became a problem. Mm-hmm. Can you just briefly explain what you saw in terms of how it builds and then you kind of get your breaking point? Yeah. Yeah, so we looked at um, the oospore dose that's in the soil that's required to cause disease, and we started with very low oospore doses, about 1, 10, 50 oospores per gram of soil, where we really didn't see any disease at all. The plants were completely healthy, and looking at them, you would have never guessed that there's a phanomyces in the soil. But then as soon as we kind of hit that magic number, which is about 100 oospores per gram of soil, uh, you see that the plants are basically completely dead, the disease hits very fast, and then above that 100, it just plateaus very quickly where disease severity you know, stays the same. And so that's part of the problem is that why it went undetected for so long is because the peas looked healthy, even though I guess they were silently increasing those that oospore dose in the soil to the point where it became a problem. Um, and then I should also mention that that threshold level does seem to differ between different soil types. And so when I say 100 oospores per gram, it's really just kind of an average ballpark across all the soil types to to simplify matters. And what are you seeing with the different uh, soil types? Are there some soils that are more susceptible to uh, the root rot? Yeah, uh, interestingly what we saw was that the silty loam soils had the lowest oospore threshold dose at about 50 oospores per gram of soil, and the clay loam soils had the highest 
threshold dose at about 275 oospores per gram of soil. Those was surprising results because we do often see that the root rots are worse in the kind of heavy clay soils. But I think the clay soils just hold moisture more. So even if that oospore dose needs to be a little bit higher, they stay wetter for longer and conditions are better for infection. Uh, for longer in those clay soils. Can you explain that a bit? So in the clay soils, they had more spores for the same level of, I guess, infection as the sandier soils with less spores? Exactly, yeah. So if, you know, I think we kind of looked at a target, well, how many spores will it take to reach a disease severity of three? And that's about midpoint on our scale. A disease severity of three would mean about 75% of the roots are rotted. And so if we look at what the equivalent dose is across all of the soil types, uh, the clay loam would need about 275 oospores to get to hit that kind of disease severity level of 75% roots rotted, uh, whereas the silty loam, I think, took about 50. But that's in a greenhouse where we're not, the environment isn't at play, right? So we are watering everything equally and making sure everything was equal. And I think it's out in the field where we see you know silty loam might drain a lot faster you don't retain those wet conditions for as long as a clay soil where it can stay saturated for much longer and you mentioned crop rotation what are some good alternatives for other pulse crops to throw into the rotation that you have seen aren't uh, hosts for the disease yeah so we we're evaluating soybean faba bean and chickpea as alternate pulse crops uh, soybean did remarkably well um, at our sites. It did not uh, support any Aphanomyces colonization, and we saw very little root rot at, the, at those sites. Faba bean as well does not support, did not support any Aphanomyces uh, colonization, but it did support some Fusarium colonization, but not to the same extent as pea. And then we saw the same for chickpea. Very little, it had a little bit of Aphanomyces, but very little compared to pea, and the same, a little bit of Fusarium, but very little compared to pea. Um, but I should mention, as an aside, chickpea can have, we did some further testing of fusarium, uh, two different fusarium species and their susceptibility to pulse crops, and chickpea can be fairly susceptible to fusarium. So we do, if you're going to plant chickpea, I think everyone already knows that you use a seed treatment, and as particularly with that susceptibility to fusarium, uh, you definitely want to use a, a seed treatment that targets fusarium if you're looking at using them as an alternate pulse crop. And cover crops? Were you seeing some cover crops as really good breaks? Yeah, so we're we're just starting um, a fairly large cover crop trial, uh, looking at different brassica species for their ability to uh, what's called biofumigate the soil. And basically, what that means is that as they break down, as the roots and the vegetative tissue breaks down, they are actually re releasing chemicals that have a fumigation effect. Uh, so we are trying to see if that can be incorporated into the field. Most of the studies have been done in the greenhouse and have shown great results, but do we see the same thing out in the field? So we just started um, testing that. We grew out our cover crops in 2019, and then we'll be planting peas into those the cover crop footprints in 2020 uh, to see whether them uh, really had an effect or not. But at the same time, we also tested a number of different legume cover crops to see which ones could potentially be a host for Phanomyces, as there's more and more interest in sustainable agriculture and crop diversification. People are starting to incorporate legume cover crops into uh, their practices, and they just have to be cautious about which ones they use uh, because some of them can be susceptible to Phanomyces. And particularly, we found that the vetches were equally susceptible to Phanomyces as pea. 
uh, where some of the clover species uh, were maybe a host for phanomyces but didn't show disease, and then other clover species were not a host at all. Um, then I will try to post those results somewhere so people can have a look and see what those, uh, what those different crop options are. Yeah. And we'll probably leave, we've done some articles before on your research, we'll probably leave them in the show notes. An interesting thing that you mentioned in your presentation were seed treatments. Can you tell me a bit about what your research saw with the seed treatments for Aphanomyces? Sure, yeah. We have tested over the past five years, we have tested a number of seed treatments, different combinations, some that are registered, some that are not. Uh, and really what we saw was that seed treatments do provide kind of an early season suppression of root rots, um, you know, seedling blights. But the problem is, is that Aphanomyces is not an early seedling disease, it is a disease that comes up later in the season. So I think while the claims for early season suppression can be supported, we didn't see that they provided any long-term benefits to the soil. So when Aphanomyces is coming in mid-June to early July, we're not seeing any long-term effect of seed treatments. And what about Lyme? Uh, Lyme is something that I'm very excited about. Uh, we just ran some greenhouse trials uh, and saw that a hydrated Lyme product really was the best I've ever seen in reducing uh, Aphanomyces root rot levels. And we saw an equivalent increase in the root biomass, which was really nice to see. But things work in the greenhouse, and then the next step is going to be to take it out into the field. Um, and there will be uh, you know, some questions about how that can fit into an agronomic practice, how much lime we might have to put out into the fields, whether it has to be tilled in. But we're hoping to take that to the next phase of research in, in 2020 and do some field trials and see if our fantastic greenhouse results are supported out in the field. And root rot seems kind of like a very like long-term disease to study. You talked about how like you're looking at a six to eight year break in crop rotation. So what really excites you the most about, you know, sticking with this disease and learning more about it? Yeah, it's a very, it's a very challenging disease and pathogen to work with. And I think I guess that's partly why it's exciting because it's difficult. Um, and I think just the fact that I can see how much it's challenging producers right now is really what kind of keeps the interest in research going. And that we have, there's so many different avenues that we're trying to go down and build a complete best management practice. Uh, so it's really exciting to be involved in that phase of the research where we're starting to learn so much about this pathogen, so much about management options, you know, and being able to build those those practices really from the ground up. And, you know, we started from not knowing anything five years ago and our knowledge is rapidly increasing. So it's really exciting to be involved in that. Is there anything that you would say specifically to the growers who do have this disease on their field uh, right now and are dealing it in real time? Yeah, um, well, I think I, I think I posted on Twitter last summer that it really breaks my heart sometimes to see what those fields look like. And that it's, yeah, it's such a challenge for producers to work with, but we're trying, I think the, the pulse growing industry is really behind research on this disease. And all of the researchers that are working on it are very dedicated to trying to come up with a solution. Um, and so even though it's frustrating, we are trying our best to, to come up with with some sort of management options. 
Yeah. You had a lot of engagement here today where people were asking questions and it clearly seems to resonate, especially if they have that firsthand experience with dealing with it. So I guess one of my final questions is kind of more broad um, to agriculture in general. What do you think is something very important for a producer or an agronomist to be learning about or to know given the current climate? It doesn't have to be disease related. What do you think is kind of something that people should be learning more about? I think crop diversification is going to be key. It's just in general dealing with all the challenges that are facing agriculture right now. And, you know, I guess particularly is related to pests and disease and plant health that really it's crop diversification that is going to make a big difference on in our in our long-term agricultural outlook. You know, I guess the the three standard crops, pea or lentil and canola and wheat, are, I think it's proving that it's just not sustainable, that we're seeing so many issues arise, um, and that the, the challenge is going to be coming up with ways that we can diversify our crops and uh, come up with a more sustainable system. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Celebrating its 35th anniversary this year, ANL Canada Laboratories is an innovative, research-driven technology company focused on sustainable development. Through leading expertise, modern laboratory facilities, and a strong customer focus, ANL serves a wide range of industries, including agriculture, environmental, food, and pharma globally. ANL's Vitellus Soil Health Test is the next generation soil health test and recommendations package used by farmers and crop consultants across Canada to make more informed decisions on their application of nutrients and on managing and improving their soil. To learn more, check out alcanada.com and reach out to your local ANL rep. My name is uh, Dan Orchard. I'm from Wetaskiwin, Alberta. I guess my claim to fame was uh, the first discovery of clubroot in canola. It really wasn't me, it was the farmer. He just called me uh, because he didn't know what it was. So now my new claim to fame is kind of the inventor of, of clubroot, I guess, in canola or something, uh, whether that's a good thing or not. And I brought with me uh, a farmer from Alberta who if you can picture uh, Curtis Farms in the absolute heart of clubroot country, and um, I'll let him introduce himself and tell you a little bit of his uh, history about his clubroot connection. Hi, everyone. Um, I've known, well, that's how I got to know Dan back in 2002. Uh, we farm just outside of the Edmonton International Airport area in south. We're spread out about 30 miles uh, across. We, we crop about 4,000 acres. And we move, I figured it out the other night, we move 96 times, 96 times we move down the road in and out of about 128 parcels of land. And so we farm little parcels spread out. Dan Orchard, agronomy specialist with Canola Council of Canada. Uh, Curtis Hinkleman, producer out of the Edmonton area in Alberta. And so the first question is for you, Dan. Can you tell me about how you came to discover club root and how that came about? It was from a farmer calling me, and so they had issues with maturity. They felt like this particular field matured way too quickly, and when they were there swathing, uh, the plants just pulled out of the ground. They weren't anchored anymore, so the club root was that bad. So, I mean, in hindsight, the very first field we found was really, really bad, and we likely... Sh 
should have known at the time that it wasn't going to be isolated to one field and that it likely had been there for years and years. But we're, we're that's hindsight. Now we've learned a lot about it. So, so that very first field was a surprise. There wasn't very many fields that year. But I think, like I say, in hindsight, we should have realized that it was probably a much wider spread problem than, than just th this little isolated area that we found. Yeah, and hindsight is twenty twenty. Always. <laughs> so another thing you mentioned was that growers shouldn't rely on surveys, club root surveys, before you know scouting their own fields. Can you expand a bit more about what you meant? Yeah, I think surveys are extremely valuable. They're awesome. They help track and and often help forewarn people. You know, club roots on the way, but it's not that common for a survey to find club root. I would say more often than not, it's the survey doesn't find it. So it, it just reiterates the importance of farmers needing to do this themselves and agronomists and people need to get out in the field and look themselves rather than waiting, you know, for the, for the survey to, to tell them that they have club root. And the, I guess my only part about the survey that would have me concerned is people get complacent when the survey says that they didn't find club root in that area. They feel like that's the gospel truth and there's a, a border somewhere that's keeping club root out of their region just because the survey didn't find it and then the the counties and the farmers in that area tend to not look as aggressively as the people um, that have found it already so that's a little unfortunate but I think that the important message is just look 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 scout 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 and, yeah. and for you Curtis how did you come about how we come about it in 02 it was actually at swathing time we noticed some damage, looked like chemical damage at first, and we started looking, and uh, we discovered the club root. But that backing it up a few years, it's been around. We just haven't, we didn't identify it earlier on. And that's where we're at right now, is we want the message to go across that the earlier identification is your best tool in fighting this. And what are some other really good management practices that growers should be aware of. You talked about the recipe. Rotation and resistance are the the two pillars, really. Um, for sure, resistant varieties need to be deployed before club root becomes a problem. That's that's sometimes an issue as well. When, again, going, getting back to the survey, when people don't think they're in a club root area, they don't think they need a resistant variety, but we need to put resistant varieties ahead of club root and with a proper rotation and and I kind of think that you know there's three or four things that if you don't have club root on your farm and you grow resistant varieties on a rotation and you don't bring in foreign soil I'm kind of convinced you'll never know if you even ever do get club root it's when when you don't do some of those things that you'll find out in a hurry you have it and then and then those things aren't as valuable anymore to for management mm -hmm. and another thing when people talk about club root, it's kind of like once you have it, you have it, and it's forever there. Can it be managed if you kind of just follow the steps and do good management? Have you been able to see that you kind of keep it at bay? Yes, you know we've. If you follow management practices, and and it's it it's from record keeping to developing yourself a, a map, a chart to follow. And if you stay by that, like now we're at the position that we don't even know we. We don't. We know we have it, but we don't see the effects of it, and we'd have, we'd be hard pressed to find the signs of it at the point we're at now. After 
you know, dozens of years of uh, following a management practice. Yeah. And what are some key management practices that you do that you find are working really well? Rotation, 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 record keeping, and resistant varieties are the primary ones that have helped us come over that hurdle. And if anybody, I, I believe that it's, you can find it anywhere within the Western provinces. You just haven't looked for it and found it yet, but it's, it's there. And with rotation, what was your rotation before O2 and what is your rotation now? Our rotation before O2 was still on a three-year cycle, but we just never identified it. We, we lived in an area where there was oil field activity. We thought it was, it was probably from like a past activity, salt spills, etc. And uh, we were didn't really diagnose it. The Dan brought this to the forefront and that's kind of how it come about. You know, we actually probably pulled plants five, ten years prior to that, but thought, you know, it was what is it? What is it, right? Yeah. So what is the difficulty with club root? It seems to be very, very complex and always evolving. If you were kind of to describe club root to, you know, someone who isn't very familiar with the disease how can you pinpoint just how difficult it is to really manage it and to deal with it and to learn more about it? You know, I guess it would be, to me, it's a little bit like health, human health. So you go to the doctor and the doctor says, oh man, you, you're not healthy. You need to start eating healthy and exercising to, to get healthy. Had you started that program, you know, years prior, you wouldn't even be at the doctor for advice. You wouldn't need to. And I find it the same with club root is if you don't, proactively manage it before it gets there that your remedy after is is there isn't one possibly and and you're always chasing it and fighting it you know Curtis was lucky enough to have to have this rotation he was on but what saved his farm was would be the resistance because he's already on this rotation he's already doing a lot but without resistance that whole recipe is thrown out, just like without rotation, that whole recipe doesn't work any longer, right? So so the whole package deal is what we lend the success, you know, Curtis's success to, and the other people that are successfully farming with Clubber is, is that whole, I guess, the whole recipe, right? Yeah, and you mentioned in your presentation, he manages club root and he doesn't let club root manage him which i think is an interesting way to phrase it because mm -hmm. just because you have club root doesn't mean that you know your fields are completely kaput like you can work within it as long as you're kind of taking a little extra details so on that note of resistant varieties how do you go about selecting resistant varieties and like is it first gen second gen or it doesn't really matter? we uh we select them on we've went through the first gen already we primarily look at, I look at harvestability. Yield is my last thing I really look at. Harvestability, the resistance package it has. And um, not only that, even some of the like reviews and our other peers and stuff and talking with like people like Dan, we, uh, that's how we make a lot of our decisions on that. And if you were to talk with a grower who normally picks variety based on yield, and now they're thinking of switching to resistant varieties, but they're a bit hesitant on it. What would you say to a grower like that who is kind of worried that a resistant variety will not perform as well as an older variety that they've been more comfortable and familiar with? 
I would say that, you know, in performance, they're pretty close to each other. So I, I think that just basing it off performance, they're, you have to look at the whole package of their nutrient package, their whole management package beforehand, before you really make a, a true judgment on a variety. And not only that, try a couple varieties. Mm -hmm. that, that would be the biggest key yeah. I would see. Another thing in the recipe is soil movement. Mm -hmm. Why is that important? Originally, we didn't ever dream that clubroot could be moved as quickly as it has been. Like it's a soil-borne disease, so we kind of assumed that you know these move fairly slow, and we've got to move a lot of soil to move it around, which really isn't the case because there's so many spores that that the the soil movement is more important. So. The very first batch of clubroot that kind of got moved around before the resistant varieties and things were there got moved really quickly. And now the second kind of batch of clubroot that's able to overcome that first resistance um, sources, it's going to get moved around just at the same rate that that first, you know, batch did if we don't change something, right? So we need, and, and so we need to get ahead of that. And even more important because we're running out of genetic options now with some of the new strains and pathotypes showing up. So we can't afford to move that soil, especially to introduce that soil to areas that haven't had club root before. You could imagine if soil that contains pathotypes that are able to overcome all our resistance get moved to a new area, they wouldn't even get a chance to start with resistance. It, would, it wouldn't work to begin with. So we need to make sure we're not moving that soil around so I, I still think that the movement of soil needs to be, I don't think we're ever going to stop it, but it needs to be significantly restricted and, and a lot less than we've been doing. And how can you, if you have clubroot already, what are some of the practices you can do to reduce spore load in a field already? So obviously the rotation we talked about, right? A two-year break is your biggest bang for your buck. So adding grasses and I guess um, crops that aren't host crops, they, they will coax the spores out of dormancy. So that that's really the biggest thing. And I think when we're running into patches of new strains or pathotypes of clubroot able to defeat our first source of resistance, we need to rely on things like grasses and other crops to drive the spore load down as quickly as, as humanly possible. And I, I just think that grassing entrances, like Curtis mentioned in, in his talk, that the entrances are rarely productive. The water runs are rarely productive. It's the, it's the areas that tend to be not very productive that are always muddy that clubroot thrives in. And if we grass those areas, there's le far less chance of moving soil out of these contaminated areas. Yeah. And did you find it difficult for you, Curtis, to convert your entrances to grass patches or to do some patch management across your field. It wasn't really difficult because it was part of the job. We, we identified that we have to change something. We want to stay in the game. So grassing that wasn't an issue, even with the grassed waterways, like Dan said, they, they, were the they were the less productive areas. And in the big picture, I mean, it, it's paid off in the end. I think we're at the point now where we've, I hope to say that Unfortunately, where we live, we're branded as the hotbed for clubroot, but I, I see us on, a, on the downturn in the infection levels where the, all these other areas haven't been identified yet. And that's the scary part about it, is what's actually out there. Mm -hmm. 
and that's the key to the whole thing scouting identification early on yeah. is the key to the whole problem and there has been it's kind of anecdotal evidence but the people that do surveys and the people that spend a lot of time in the fields like myself and Curtis and, and people from the university that Leduc County who have kind of started the regulation process first really first, yeah. they have like Curtis said kind of a downward trend on really disastrous fields in their county compared to some of the neighboring counties who weren't regulating and weren't and I don't like to use the term regulate, but weren't surveying, weren't alerting the growers to their problem and weren't helping work with growers. We're finding those areas have some really, really, really disastrous fields, right? Where I find that the counties that are working with their farmers and have been for a while, they certainly club root spreading because you can't stop that, but it's not having that major, major impact like it is with, with, with some of the other counties that aren't as I guess progressive or as proactive in helping the farmers with this disease. So with that said, Saskatchewan and Manitoba are kind of where Alberta was 10, 20 years ago. So what advice would you give to those growers for tackling with club root, knowing what you know now? Tomorrow, they need to have a plan. They need to start tomorrow. Rotation. I mean, if they're on a two-year two rotation right now, it'd they better change it to three immediately. It's, it has to start tomorrow. There's no holding back on this. There's no, and to rely on like the province of Alberta, I mean, there's a lot of protocols and stuff set up that they can rely on and use some of that information from mm -hmm. people like Dan and Canola Council and the work that's been done. I agree, and you know, I, I, I just see such a great learning experience, like Curtis said, that they can take from us and don't do what we did. And it wasn't that we were blatantly doing things wrong. We just didn't know anything at the time. We didn't have access to resistant varieties. So it was not an option. You know, like things got out of control in some of Alberta before we had any idea how to possibly manage this. Whereas now in Saskatchewan and Manitoba, they just know so much more information that I just, don't ever foresee it getting to that point and they they have the opportunity for sure to never let it get to that point and so if you were to boil it down to one key takeaway what's one thing you really want people to gain from your presentation here today awareness yeah make awareness. a plan make a plan yeah, scouting a, yeah don't hide it right make a plan i think the make i like that make make a plan and that goes for all crops right no, that's true it's true we're Many producers are complacent on just relying on putting the crop in the ground and and relying on a retailer or someone to give them a little bit of agronomy advice and walk away and come back in the fall and, and harvest in. And not only that, we need to look at ourselves championing Canada. Like if we're gonna, we we need to tackle this now for our marketplace too. That mm -hmm. we're we're taking care of our issues, right? Mm -hmm. And that's a question that I've been asking some of the other speakers is kind of more generally in the broader climate of agriculture now, it doesn't have to be club related. What do you think is one thing that producers should know to kind of do what they're doing given the climate? Or what's one thing that they should be learning to make sure that they're, you know, staying competitive in this ag climate? 
And I'm really starting to like this tagline of make a plan. You know, yeah. I think this is this is yeah. key. You know, and even when Curtis mentioned rotation, you know, it's if you don't plan to extend your rotation, then you won't. It's it's just too easy to seed wheat and canola. What you know, when push comes to shove. But if you can plan it out on paper, and, and it doesn't always pencil out exactly how you've made. You know, plans need to change too. But certainly starting with a plan, I think, is great. It's kind of a tough climate to be in now. So if there's anything that you feel that growers can be doing to stay. You know what, the biggest thing to grow, we we need to, growers need to stay informed. They need to be engaged in, regarding Clubber, get engaged with your, your MD, your county, your municipality on be the leader at this and, and be at the forefront of, combating this disease you know be the driver in the in the be in the driving seat mm-hmm. i know we've talked about uh legislation and regulation and stuff and we all hate it but if you're there if you can change it doesn't have to come to that point yeah and dan you mentioned in your presentation education rather than regulation mm-hmm. which is important because you said you wanted regulation to kind of be science-based, not just regulation for the sake of regulation. And it was an audience question about, you know, what's the good and the bad yeah. about regulation. If you were to kind of sum up what you think about regulation for club root in one sentence, kind of what would you say? Uh, that's a real thing. I do honestly have seen a huge trend in the regulators becoming educated to make better decisions in Alberta. It's unbelievable how many of them come to our meetings, how many contact me individually or our researchers individually, because they truly want to do the best thing for, for their county. But when they don't know what the best thing is, then sometimes then those, the regulations don't, don't match science. But I, I really truly believe that we're making huge steps forward with the regulatory bodies doing uh, what they feel is the best based on science. Mm-hmm. And Curtis, you have a lot of skin in the game because you're in club root country. What are your thoughts on regulation? My thoughts on regulations, I unfortunately, I believe there needs to be some form of regulation. But in the past, the regulation, we didn't have the science to meet the regulation. Now the science is catching up and the regulation, they can they can kind of coincide together because uh, we didn't have that information before. But unfortunately, regulation has to be in place because some, you know, some people don't feel the the uh, that they have to follow a code of ethics, if I call it. So sometimes that has to come into play to protect the the neighbor. Yeah. Unfortunately. So one of my final questions is: we talk about crop rotation as being a way to mitigate club root. But in some of these areas, especially if you think about northern Alberta or any northern part, really, there really is a limit into what type of crops you can Mm -hmm. add to the rotation because Mm -hmm. just based on your climate, your region, you don't really have that many choices. What can a producer do if you're not as lucky as, say, someone who's four hours south of you who has more options to grow? Well, that's why it's so important to us and dear to our hearts because we, we don't have that ability. We're very limited in the crops. There's, they, we, I mean, we've tried the soybean route that's been tried, the lentils, um, and fabas. Uh, we're, we're just not there yet. We, we don't have the climate for it. So we have to protect 
the crops that do grow there. Unfortunately, it's canola, wheat, barley, peas are our are, are, are options. And I think John Gilly, who you spoke with too, have another farmer that's been you know dealing with club root and managing it successfully, will we'll suggest that if you plan, like Curtis is saying, make a plan, and you might not convert your whole farm to a three-year rotation this spring because you you feasibly can't do that if you've never grown malt barley or peas before you can't put a third of your farm to something you don't know how to grow because that's not a wise decision so i think curtis has nailed it right on the head is is plan now and i think they can slowly start incorporating small amount of acres of these crops to try to learn how to grow them on more acres and find out what they're good at growing learn how to grow them and, and have a wide range of opportunities to grow different crops. I don't think it's the best decision to just jump into crops that you're unable to grow. And I know John would suggest that it takes close to five years to go from a two to a three year rotation just because of the way it works. You've been on this rotation, you're used to it, you need to understand how to grow these other crops, where to put them, you know, and to, and to get everything rolling takes a while so I think it's really important to start that planning now and manage it from now on yeah and the canola council has a host of resources for managing club root and I guess just canola in general so I'll be sure to include that in the show notes is there any specific resource that you feel is important yeah I well the club root part two video just because I was the director (laughs) So <laughs> I feel no. I spent a lot of time on it. I uh, the researchers helped me. Our video editor is just absolutely amazing, and it shocks me how few people have seen the Clubroot videos. So there's part one and part two, and really it does summarize everything that we've talked about. And and most of all the talks you'll see on Clubroot can be kind of viewed in 12 minutes on this on on these videos. So that that's my favorite resource. Have you seen it? I've seen it, yes. There you go. One of you are. So thank you so much. (laughs) Okay. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you want to review any of the presentations in depth, we released a full digital edition of all the Plant Health Summit presentations. So go to topcropmanager.com and click Digital Issue to find out more. Thanks for tuning in to Inputs, the podcast by Top Crop Manager. To catch up on all of our other episodes, visit topcropmanager.com slash podcasts.